back, folks, to the Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. It is Joseph Ricky alongside my wonderful co-host, Sheila Mulliken, back here at Carton recording another episode. And as you might be able to hear in the background, work is nonstop around here uh, to maintain all the Battle of Franklin Trust sites. We've got some work going on just outside the recording area here. So if you hear some sawing and some hammering in the background, know that that is... Donations at work, uh, donations to the Battle of Franklin Trust to continue the upkeep of all three historic houses uh, right here. And you can hear it. It's proof there. Uh, good morning, Sheila. Good Welcome morning. Back. Good to be back. It's been a minute, uh, mm-hmm. admittedly, since we've sat down. And we've got, I think, a, a really important topic. I think all of our topics are important. But this right. is one of those that is... It's a central discussion that happens anytime you talk about the Civil War. Anytime you talk about battles is you've got the killed, and you've got the wounded, and you've got the missing. And among the missing could be the captured. We're talking about prisoner of war experiences uh, and prisoners of war uh, throughout the American Civil War. So that is our topic for this episode. And Sheila, this is one that in putting together my show notes for it, it was like, okay, there's the general policy. We can talk about the general policy. There's the letter of the law. There's all these things that we need to talk about. And then there's the three members, uh, really, the three houses that are represented within these prison camps. Right, and all of our families had personal connections, to because there were members of the Chairs family and the Carter family Mm -hmm. and even the McGavick extended family that Mm -hmm. were all connected to these prisons. And Mm -hmm. so they certainly got a firsthand acquaintance with that system. And so I think best thing we can do is kind of dive in with uh with this absolutely and, and it's to say that and appropriately enough we're recording this episode on april the 12th and april the 12th 1861 is of course the the kickoff to the to the ball if you would mm-hmm. uh First it all, shots fired at sumter it it all starts rolling from this point and this is a nation that is going to war but is vastly unprepared for what the longevity of the war would look like most people understand that if we go to war, it'd be 90 days, it'd mm-hmm. be over. And there's very little preparation put in place to enact any policy for prisoners of war. If you're captured in these early battles throughout 1861, you're pretty quickly just sent back home or paroled because there is no place to hold you. Mm-hmm. And then we start to develop a policy. Okay, well, now we'll come up with a system and we'll imprison captured soldiers in these established camps. And then, of course, the U.S. government has a lot of extra forts that are being uh, sort of used as training grounds in the beginning of the war. Fort Warren mm-hmm. is the perfect example. Fort Warren is an essentially a training ground installation outside of Boston, Massachusetts, that by 1862 becomes a prison camp because of the necessity for a place to put captured Confederate soldiers. And then we start this policy of taking prisoners on battlefields and sending them to these camps. But then how do you face overcrowding? So then you make a prisoner exchange. One of the ways to kind of deal with that is every so often Mm -hmm. you have, and there's a really uh, strict system about exchanging officers Mm -hmm. versus enlisted men, for example. Yeah, that comes into effect July 22nd, 1862 is the first of those, the first of the agreements comes Mm -hmm. forward and it's called the Dix Hill 
cartel. Uh, and so this is an agreement between General John Dix on behalf of the United States Army and uh, D.H. Hill on behalf of the Confederate government. They come together and they decide how they'll do the exchange. And basically it's almost a number system. Mm -hmm. X amount of officers equates to X amount of enlisted men, X amount of Confederate officers to X amount of enlisted men. And when you have the quota, you can swap, which works out great to manage overcrowding. And that policy will go into effect from 1862 and will stay largely in effect until 1863. It'll face a lot of modifications and some things that will be changed. And then, of course, we'll talk about what happens in 63 to that system. Uh, but then it's, what, January of 1862? Early on in that system, of course, we have local folks that are affected by that. Moscow Carter is taken prisoner in January of 1862 at the Battle of Mill Springs. And he is sent to Fort Warren in Boston. And there he's going to have lots of local company because Randall W. McGavick is there. He is a cousin of John McGavick. Also, Nat Chairs will end up there. They even have a little bit of uh, interaction. But Randall W. McGavick wrote a whole book about his experience during the war um, and leading up to that. And he gets taken to Camp Chase first. That's where he starts at Camp Chase in Ohio, and he described it as being dirty and loathsome and not fit for hogs and cattle. Now, this is in 1862. It's only going to get worse, but this is how he finds it even in early 1862. Um, and then he, because he is an officer, as is Moscow, as is Nat Chairs, they're all eventually transferred to Fort Warren in Boston, which is a very different situation. He says... There we found very comfortable rooms, along with French cooks and waiters, and as well-served tables as can be found at any first-class hotel in the country. He even, he'd gone to school there, so he knew his way around. He'd gone to school mm -hmm. at Harvard, so he had local friends. He's getting suits made for him by the same tailor who sewed for him at Harvard. He's also receiving bottles of brandy and boxes of cigars from they local get, friends. They get passes to go into they town. They can even go into town, right. And um, the one frustration he uh, admits is that he it's impossible to gather any reliable information about the movements and results of the war because mm -hmm. he feels like everything he's reading is distorted. Moscow also writes letters home to his kiddos from Fort Warren, and it's kind of, it's really sweet to be able to read his words, and he, he talks about the fact that Fort Warren is on an island in the middle of the harbor, and he says, you've probably talked about islands in your school books, but if not, it's a body of land entirely surrounded by the water. He even talks about the fact he can see Boston. You know, mm -hmm. we're within sight of the city and Bunker Hill Monument that you might have heard about in school. He talks about the weather being different. It's un uncomfortably cold at night. Uh, we keep fires all the time. But you guys are probably already picking strawberries at home. And we can't get any fruit of any kind except last year's apples. Um, he's asking them about their schoolwork and encouraging them to, you know, mm -hmm. be obedient to their aunts and everything. But so the experience in Fort Warren is one thing. So in, in July of 1862, right after, as you mentioned, the, the rules of exchange are kind of put into place, these are some of the first guys that benefit from that because Nat Chairs and Randall W. McGavick and Moscow are all sent home at the end of July, well, sent back to Richmond originally mm -hmm. and then exchanged there and ultimately will make their way 
to various destinations. Randall W. McGavitt goes back to fighting, and he will be eventually killed in this war at the Battle of Raymond in the buildup to the siege at Vicksburg. But Nat Chairs and Moscow Carter both come home. Now, Nat Chairs will eventually re-engage, but Moscow Carter comes home and he stays home. By this point, his wife has died. He has commitments here, and he will not re-engage in the war, although, obviously, the war eventually comes to him. Mm-hmm. And when they return home, they're coming back fall, uh, summer and fall of 1862. And at this phase in the war, nothing so much has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the war has, armies have marched through Middle Tennessee. They have fought uh, down south in the Tennessee, Mississippi, right there on, at the Battle of Shiloh in April of 62. The summer had been very violent, had been an uproar in the, the battles that had been taking place. And I think that's when most Americans are getting a better picture of what kind of struggle we're mm-hmm. in, that this is not going to be a 90-day war. It is not going to be easy, mm-hmm. and we do have to begin to put some of those structures in place as mm-hmm. to how we move forward. And then along comes September the 22nd, 1862. Abraham Lincoln announces the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And then it goes into effect. Uh, the Second Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect on January the 1st of 63. And what we see from this is now the enlistment of 189,000 black men into the United States Army and the Navy. And the problem then is created out of the prisoner of war exchange is that by March of 1863, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government dictate that they will not take black men in the United States Army as prisoners. Instead, they would be re-enslaved or uh, the white officers would face severe punishments, right? Mm -hmm. So we see all of these things starting to take place, and that is going to lead to the breakdown of the exchange system. Well, if they're not going to take our men prisoner, the reasoning in the War Department for Lincoln and General Ulysses S. Grant is, well, then fine. We just won't exchange our prisoners for them. And at this point in the war, mm-hmm. there are more Confederate prisoners in federally owned and, and federal prisons than there are federal soldiers in Confederate prisons. It now, now it becomes the game of arithmetic. Yeah, It's bleed them dry, take as many of their men as you possibly can, and then we see the absolute breakdown of that exchange system that had worked uh, with the Dix Hill cartel and all the various cartels that follow after them. And that doesn't mean that necessarily parole and exchange is over for good. It's that it becomes a lot more rare and it's no longer the official policy. It's not the letter of the law anymore. It is now it's more the spirit of the law. And that brings Nat shares right back into the picture. Yeah, because he's going to end up at Camp Chase later in the war, and his experience there is going to be a good bit different. He's he's sick there a good bit because he's captured in late 1863 mm-hmm. and will spend the rest of the war there. I mean, he comes home uh, when the, at war's end. The other person that is captured in 1863 is Todd Carter, he, and he is sent to Johnson's Island mm-hmm. in Ohio, And he's writing letters at home, too, just like Moscow did. He's having several exchanges with his family. Um, And he talks about life there. It's still not completely dismal when he's there in 1863. He says some of the prisoners have organized a band of Negro minstrels and have given notice on the bulletin board they will be giving a concert this evening. A mess made of mine has made a complete fiddle out of a piece of pine board, a pocket knife, a sheet of sandpaper being his only tools. We have classes learning French law and military science. I question whether that was wise or not, but um, 
And we have a thriving little village of nearly 3,000 prisoners, and ingenuity is taxed to desire means of raising money and passing away time. You will be surprised, perhaps, to learn that one of our officers keeps a barbershop. Many of them peddle apples, tobacco, and many high-in-rank wash clothing for 10 cents a garment, which must have been interesting to observe. He also, though, asks, um, asks his sister to solicit from his father permission to send money for his expenses because he needs to buy some new woolen drawers, a woolen undershirt, a woolen overshirt, uh, some face towels, and a carpet bag to keep them in because he's having trouble buying clothing there. So unlike mm-hmm. Randall McGavick, he can't get someone to do his tailoring for him, so he needs some things sent from home. Um but he is there until the fall, and then he's being transferred to a prison in Maryland because Johnson's Island, again, an island in a mm-hmm. lake, but that lake had a tendency to freeze over in the winter, which made escape easier. So they're transferring these prisoners to Maryland, and Todd jumps off the train and escapes and uh, kind of embarks on this two-month odyssey whereby he takes a somewhat circuitous path home, does a little <laughs> adventuring on the way, but will eventually end up back in Dalton, Georgia, with the 20th Tennessee, and will be with the Army of Tennessee when they come back through here in fall of 1864. And the Atlantic campaign will, of course, see Confederate General Joseph Johnston and the Army of Tennessee attempting to hold off uh, the federal campaign for Atlanta under mm-hmm. the command of General William Tecumseh Sherman. And as Johnston retreats back to Atlanta, I think it's July 11th, he sends a telegram to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and says, you need to evacuate the prisoners at Andersonville. Mm. By now, news of what has been happening in the Confederate prison camp at Andersonville has taken to the news and is out there in the newspapers. Soldiers are reading about it. President Lincoln knows about it. General Grant knows about it. And certainly William Tecumseh Sherman knows about it. Mm-hmm. And the controversy will eventually arise that Sherman never moved on Andersonville because it was no longer the military tact- the military uh, objective. And the objective, of course, right. was to continue the, the campaign towards Savannah. But Johnston sends off that telegram to Davis, and now that will almost immediately mean that Johnston will be replaced by John Bell Hood and thus set the stage for our story here mm-hmm. on November the 30th of 1864. But it's the evacuation of the prison camp that I've always thought was really interesting. Because they were willing to give up that prison camp. Mm-hmm. Andersonville, mm-hmm. too, is probably one of the best known of the prisons. I mean, mo- most notorious of it. Robert Kellogg, who was captured in North Carolina, described it thus. He said, as we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect, stalwart men. Now, now nothing but mere walking skeletons covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men exclaimed with earnestness, can this be hell? And, of course, the, the captain who was overseeing that camp, Henry Wirtz, he was a Swiss immigrant, and he's one of only two men sentenced to death for war crimes during the American Civil War. He certainly was not the only person in charge there at Andersonville. He was the only one that was tried. You know, people have differing opinions on whether that was the correct thing to do or not. He certainly had challenges, just like all these other administrators of the camp did, but... Um, Ultimate responsibility, Ultimate comes, responsibility back to him. comes to him. And and that's where, you know, the buck stops there. But the things that are happening in Andersonville, the things that are happening in Camp Douglas, the things that are happening in Elmira, yeah. Libby Prison, all of these places that have now just been dominated by the fact that you've got armies that are in the field, 
that, granted, for all of the manufacturing strength that the United States Army has, is still struggling to get the Army fed and keep men clothed and keep them moving on the march. Exactly. And you've got the Confederate government who is straining to do just that and keep an army in the field. And now you've got to add in the prison camps. Mm-hmm. Which one takes the precedence? Of course, right. it's the army. You got to feed somebody. You got to feed your army. And so there are men that will be in these prison camps that will be eating month-old and year-old products. I mean, you think you'd mentioned the year-old apples from mm-hmm. Moscow Carter? That's drastically different than tainted old meat, meat that has right. been hanging around for you know six extra months. That's being fed to these men. Their source of water is the same like canal that they use. Sanitation is horrible. And you've got men dying of disease. You've got, and in Andersonville especially, when they add on the addition to the camp, mm-hmm. there's never any allowance made for building cabins or anything. So they're literally holes Exposed in the ground. The elements, right? And and places like Helmira and Andersonville, they have death rates of like a quarter of the men there are dying. Mm-hmm. Three thousand of twelve thousand imprisoned at Helmira perished. And so that's a pretty, that, that was one of the deadliest of the U.S. POW camps. But it's, it's a desperate situation everywhere. And this, of course, will circle us back around, too, is that by November of 1864, these conditions of the camps are well known. And again, they're well known to the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And on November the 30th of 1864, as the Battle of Franklin rages here in, in Franklin, Tennessee, there are members of the Federal Army here that are taken prisoner. And some of those soldiers are in General George Wagner's division that had been out front in the advanced line. Some of them are the brand new soldiers of the mm-hmm. 44th Missouri, the 183rd Ohio, and the 175th Ohio. Mm-hmm. Veteran soldiers as well from the 50th Ohio, like Erastus Winters. When he was captured, he said, visions of Andersonville and Cahaba came to my mind. It's because he has been reading about it. Mm-hmm. And because when you're captured now, it's not a game of if I will die. It becomes almost the mind of trying to figure out when they will die will it be in the transport to the prison will it be once they're there in that prison and then this i think is part of that drama of the story that ramps up is you've got these soldiers who have been in the field for a year three years they go to a prison camp and they're away from the war but all of a sudden it's still there Mm -hmm. it's almost as if these guys that are sent to prison the hell that is a battlefield is almost paling in comparison to the hell that's in the prison. Well, because they have no agency. When they're on the battlefield, at least they have a job, they have a Mm -hmm. responsibility, and now there is nothing you can do to improve your situation, and you're not furthering your cause. You're simply sitting there wasting away. Mm -hmm. Literally wasting away. Literally wasting away, and it seems such a waste. And so do you think about soldiers that are in those brand-new regiments that they fight in this horrific battle, then they get sent down to these prison camps, Andersonville and Cahaba, and then they endure everything that takes place in Andersonville. Vermin crawling all around them, eating whatever they can find, scraping up odds and ends. They're going through awful rounds of diseases, and then comes April of 1865, Mm -hmm. and the war comes to an end, and they're released from these prison camps. And they're going home. They're going home. And... The war is over. They've done their cause. There is not a single person out there that would tell them that they haven't done enough, mm-hmm. especially when they say that they were in Andersonville. Mm-hmm. And then as they are sent home, they get to the Mississippi River and they're loaded on board the Sultana. 
Right. It was docked in Vicksburg, and uh, the captain, J.C. Mason, was contracted to transport some of these POWs north. Mm-hmm. He's being pretty well paid. He gets paid $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer, and he's like, oh, that's good money. And so what he's going to do is to pile about 2,000 men on a boat with a legal carrying capacity of 376 men. And that's not the only problem. There's Mm -hmm. a problem with one of the boilers. Mm -hmm. And he had planned to have that fixed, but he's concerned that if he delays long enough to have a proper repair, they'll hire somebody else to move Mm -hmm. these guys, and he didn't want to do that. So he says, oh, no, everything's good, Mm -hmm. and starts piling all these men on there. And at 2 a.m., the boiler explodes. And it starts ripping apart the ship. There were a number of soldiers from Tennessee and Kentucky packed up near the boiler. They're the first to die. And then you have to make the decision of, is it safer to jump off in the water and try to escape? A couple of guys from here, the 183rd Ohio, Michael Conrad and Adam Schneider, they both jumped in and made a, and made a dash for it. Conrad made it to the shore alive, but Schneider didn't. And Conrad was the person who ended up having the unenviable job of telling um, the widow of Schneider that he he had perished. There are actually Confederate soldiers on the bank who jump in and try to help mm-hmm. some of these men. It's, it's a desperate situation. Some of those guys in the 50th Ohio who had had that frontline position here mm-hmm. managed to survive, survived the camps, as you talked about. They ended up being killed on board this Sultana. There was another guy who fought here, Andrew Colton Jr. Mm -hmm. He fought with the 44th Missouri, and he was reported dead. First, he was reported killed in action. Mm -hmm. That wasn't right. He was in the camp. Then he, it was reported that he had perished on the Sultana, but as it turns out, Colton and a couple of other guys were getting ready to get on the Sultana, and they looked at it and realized, ooh, this is a bad situation, Mm -hmm. and they backed off, and they did not get on board the ship, and so even though their names ended up on the manifest, they were not on there, and he actually managed to survive, but, um, and lived to an old age, I think, so Mm -hmm. his death, uh, as Mark Twain said, had been uh, grossly exaggerated, apparently. And it's, it's... It's, I guess, the unjust fate of war and the decisions that are made following the war that lead ultimately to these guys' death. You know, mm-hmm. you know, these are men that had seen some of the worst fighting in the entire war. Mm-hmm. They go through the hell that is the prison camp, and then they're right there for the worst maritime disaster in the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. And if that isn't like a dark way to end it. I don't know what else is. There's a uh, monument in Knoxville, Tennessee um, at Mount Olive Cemetery that honors some of those guys because again a lot of those Tennessee Mm -hmm. soldiers were right up next to the boiler and it says in memory of the men who were on the Sultana that was destroyed April 27th 1865 by explosion on the Mississippi River near Memphis, Tennessee. As usual, we want to leave you behind with something else. Maybe this episode sparked some curiosity. Maybe you want to read more about the prisoner of war policy and the exchange system and want to dive in a little bit more into the experiences of some of these soldiers. There's a couple of different routes that we can put you on, and one of them is Robert Kellogg's Andersonville Diary, which is by far one of the best primary accounts of what took place there. Now, again, remember that this is a personal memoir, so he has his own experience that he can kind of fill in the gaps with what he doesn't know with what his own experience was. And then the other one, of course, is kind of our homegrown, is the Baptism of Fire by Eric Jacobson. And in there, he details a lot of the soldiers' lives, especially from those three regiments. 
some of those soldiers that ended up fighting here and then, of course, being in those prison camps and talks about their lives as well. Um, those are both of our solid recommendations. And then, of course, uh, there's no reason to not have this podcast be a good way to plug what's going on around uh, here at the Battle Franklin Trust. So, Sheila, what is coming up, uh, coming down the pike? A couple of events that folks look forward to every year here at Carnton is our um, our concert series. So we have concerts coming up uh, on June the 26th. Wanted, the Bon Jovi Tribute Band will be playing here. And then on Sunday, July the 31st, Mixtape and 80s Tribute Band will be here playing. And this it's just a great time to gather on the lawn here. And we have food trucks and you can bring coolers. And it's also a chance, again, your ticket purchase is helping us to fund restoration work, just like the work that's going on out there on those columns today. So it's a, it's just a fun time for the community to get together, and we'd love to see you here for that. And how can people find out more about it? Go, go on the Facebook website, page. Facebook page. Both of those have information, and they'll, they'll connect you to links where you can buy your tickets and mm-hmm. get more information. A couple other things, too, is that we are starting the summer lecture series again. Uh, those dates and lectures are to be determined, but keep that in mind as you're kind of planning out your visits to Franklin. Maybe you want to check in on our Facebook pages and see what those look like. Other than that, any final thoughts? That's it. All righty. Well, thank you, folks, for listening to another episode of The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. Sheila, as always, a delight to be with you uh, this morning. Same here. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to like and follow the podcast. Subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcast from. Drop us a nice review. Other than that, we'll see you on the battlefield.